Welcome back to Here to There, a podcast about commuting in and around the Twin Cities and where it could go next. From Apparatus and Transit for Livable Communities and co-hosted by Lily Fatahi and Laura Mann Ginsberg, Here to There brings you along for a variety of commutes across the many systems, neighborhoods, and modes available to Twin Cities commuters. In today's episode, we're talking about flexibility in getting from here to there and how we can leverage flexible options and mindsets in our transportation. We begin the episode walking through the University of Minnesota East Bank with a dedicated pedestrian who used to rely on car share service car to go before it departed the Twin Cities. Next, we head to the studio where we're joined by the executive director of Move Minneapolis and a co-founder of Our Car, the original car share service in Minneapolis, to learn about the ways transportation flexibility can improve our health, environment, and well-being. To follow along with additional resources and information, visit heretotherepodcast.org and follow the H2T podcast hashtag on Twitter. And now, let's join the ride. Okay, so we're going to start off. This is Laylee. Welcome back to the podcast. And that's Laura, my partner at Apparatus, about to begin this week's commute along. Let's listen in. Can you just tell us your name? Yes. Um, And then podcast is here to there so where are we hearing to thereing excellent so my name is jonathan and we will be starting at the education sciences building here on the university of minnesota east bank campus and we'll be heading to my apartment building which is about 1.1 miles away and it's just off campus but it's a pretty straight shot how often do you walk every day Jonathan is an old buddy of mine from my days in academia at the Humphrey School of Public Affairs. We used to collaborate together on social science research, where Jonathan did most of the hard stuff, like statistically analyzing the data. It's unsurprising to me that Jonathan outlasted me and is now getting his PhD in quantitative methods. He has endurance and is committed, efficient, methodological, and competitive. And apparently this extends to his daily commute. Now, how long does this walk typically take you, and is it different morning and night with, in terms of time? So it takes about 21, 22 minutes on average. For friends that live near me and that work in the same building as I do, we actually have a little competition to see if we can come up with the ideal route. Time-wise, it's really easy to just, I'm going to take a different route today, mm-hmm. and maybe it adds or takes away a minute or a minute and a half. Mm-hmm. But for the variety, just seeing different things, it's really worth it. I love it when there's a lot of precipitation because that just solidifies the commitment to the commute. Like, you feel <laughs> really, you feel really invigorated. Like, you don't have anywhere to hide with it. I like it. And it's just, yeah. Very refreshing. It's gorgeous here. So we're on the East Bank, as, as Jonathan mentioned, and it's just absolutely beautiful with uh, you can see the river and the traffic. This is the joy of actually this route. There are a lot of different options. So we're just going to wind a little bit. So you've purposely then chosen to live near where you work? Yes, absolutely. And it's very intentional. That has been my goal from day one. That's been essential so that I would not have to rely on any public transit system just in case there were any issues. So I wouldn't have to worry about dealing with a car, dealing with parking, anything like that. It's been very intentional to just put the control within my hands of, I get up, I have my own two feet, 
I get to where I need to go and case closed. Are there parts of your walk that you look forward to or dread? Like, is there an intersection where you're like, oh, this intersection, <laughs> like there's such a blind yes. spot for the pedestrians or anything like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Once we get closer to the TCF Bank Stadium, going more down university, cars take a lot of risks around there mm. and the crosswalks are longer and the lights are a little more confusing with the green line. That's the thing. I had the light system down very well around here. Then the light rail moved in, which, you know, whatever, is what it is. But then the light system changed, and I have that down again. But uh, cars get goofy around the light rail intersections. I oftentimes run into people I know, and that's actually a really fun part of this is I know that, oh, if I walk through this area... I might run into people, say, like going to the rec center, which is where we're near now. I know a lot of people who go there. I go there a lot. So it's like, oh, yeah, I might run into someone I know. So that kind of a thing. You just sort of keep yourself open for fun stuff. You can see why Jonathan is a statistician. He likes order, control, and variation that's within the bounds of predictability. But he also recognizes and accepts the inevitability of uncertainty and change. Like when Car2Go, a car sharing service that Jonathan and thousands of other Twin Cities residents used, suddenly and very quickly shut down its operations here. Tell me a little bit about Car2Go. This was a big yes. topic of conversation earlier this year when they, they moved out, not just of Minneapolis, but of a couple of other cities in the United States. How were you yeah. using it and what has that done to your options since it's departed? Absolutely. So I was using it to get around the Twin Cities for a lot of things that didn't have anything to do with school. Um, it had to do with uh, teaching improv, I had to get, and, and doing improv, I had to get to different theaters at different times in the evening. I don't think I would ever really use it for errands, unless the errands were directly within Minneapolis, St. Paul, so I could leave the car and not worry about it. For many times, visiting friends who lived within uh, Minneapolis city proper, and St. Paul. I would use Car2Go to just get between the two cities. It was great. I mean, I really relied on it. And so when I found out that they were leaving, my first reaction was, I need to get a car now. So was that what you did? Did you move to purchasing a car? Yes, it was uh, first time ever. It's unclear exactly the ways in which Car2Go's many Twin Cities subscribers use the service, including how many used Car2Go as a substitute for owning their own personal vehicles. In the days following Car2Go's announcement that they were leaving, there were ample social media posts to suggest, at least anecdotally, that a good number of people were contemplating the need to buy a car in order to maintain the flexibility that access to a personal vehicle affords. Car2Go, they pulled out fast. They pulled out really fast. It was surprisingly fast. A car has been, it's been very useful now for my purposes. What do you think the city is missing out on by not having an option like that anymore? Well, it's really missing out on just a whole other way to travel and in a way that was very convenient and I mean, one of the beautiful things about Car2Go is that it's low liability. It's not your vehicle. And so that was one thing I really enjoyed and do miss about uh, partaking in the full array of car sharing services is not worrying about the vehicle getting destroyed, not worrying about it being my own investment. The city and, and many of the residents miss out on thinking about alternative 
forms of effective transportation. It just feels like a step backwards, I think. It just feels like a step away from trying a really great idea. Because then where do you go from here if you tried that here and it, it didn't land? If Cartago came back tomorrow, would you sell your car and go back to that? You know, that's a really good question. I'm not sure. I think part of me would say yes, because I had a really, I had a really great system with it. Mm-hmm. Part of me would say, I don't know if I would sell my car. I probably just wouldn't use it that much because I still operate a fair amount by going out to say like suburbs mm-hmm. and visiting friends out in the suburbs. And for the first time, drove myself to and from my hometown in southeastern Wisconsin and that went really well so I would still want to give myself that option to be able to drive myself to much farther away places. One of the great advantages of car to go was not having to worry about parking and that that's a new thing that is you know I'm confronting that and the cost for that and planning like okay where where am I gonna park? Do I need coins? I ran into like a coin only uh parking meter the other day and so that was a, a wow. reminder too that yeah not everything <laughs> it's a real is, blast from the past it was unfortunately my my dad had a coin drawer with coins just for that purpose and i had just enough to get me through uh, uh what i needed to are we jaywalking we right are now? jaywalking should I, should I have this recorded it's up to you you can <laughs> do whatever you want with this ian please um, take this out but this is the. This uh, seems a little precarious. Yeah. Have you ever thought about painting your own crosswalk here? That oh, that's a really good idea. <laughs> Rogue crosswalk painting. I love that. You heard it here first, folks. Apparatus does not endorse jaywalking or rogue crosswalk painting. Our lawyer made us say that. We've also come to learn that you did not, in fact, hear it here first. In 2015, community members in Seattle's Central District repainted the area's crosswalks in pan-African colors to reflect the neighborhood's history and the culture of its residents. In response, the city of Seattle launched a program to involve communities in the design of new crosswalks that reflect neighborhood character. By contrast, however, in the year prior in Tacoma, a group of residents painted a series of crosswalks in hopes of encouraging city officials to enact better pedestrian safety measures. There, the city threatened them with prosecution. And with that quick detour, back to John and Laura. So our car, is that something that you ever considered or tried out? The University of Minnesota made our car the official partner instead of Zipcar. So I definitely, I never got rid of my Zipcar membership. I just used our car more often because that was what was around me. I used that a lot. That was actually, that's how I was visiting friends out in the suburbs. That's how I was doing a lot of my bigger errands to farther away places. And that was, that was working very well. I very much enjoyed that. I was using our car and cargo so much. They did the math that was, there was a cutoff of where it was financially mm. unreasonable for the, the amount I was using. Mm-hmm. And so in general, getting a cheaper car or a used car ended up being more cost effective for a certain amount of usage. Do you remember what that was? What that break point was? Oh yeah, about uh, $400 per month, I'd say. And how many trips did that more or less come out to? Do you remember? Well, for the way I was using it, that would equate, my average usage was probably about two longer hour car trips per week and then maybe 
four or five or six car to go trips per week. For some of the hour car usages, I would take it out for the full day. And so that would cost about $80, $90 after uh, taxes and mileage. And I've had stuff come up in the different things I'm involved in where last minute things get changed. And I just, I've needed to have a car available to just fire away. I, it's nice to not have to worry about is a car available? How far do I have to go to it? If this one isn't available, do I have to walk farther over to get this one? So in general, that's a perfectly fine system, but for some of the last minute things I was getting involved in, I'd have to go cover for somebody for something or a thing would come up. A car was really essential for that. So that's why unfortunately I haven't used our car since I got my own car because it hasn't, there's no, there's been no other need for it at this point. When you're done with this next degree and you're gonna be looking. That's me, I've been lurking in the background. For the next job and maybe it's going to take you elsewhere. How much do you think walkability of the location is gonna play a factor in where you kind of said is ideal places to live? Right. I think it'll play a pretty big factor because I've thought about this a fair amount because I just, this is a, so much a part of my day. It's like walking to and from stuff. And I think I've readied myself for if the job is right and the location is right and you know if it involves a situation with a partner and, and getting the, the right geography and the right location for everybody, I will just find places to walk, whether it's indoors or outdoors. So while I have preference, I'll try to use that as a factor but from a practical standpoint, I'll just find places to walk, make sure that you know, I spend enough time exercising and sort of getting the whole, the whole system together, just adapting, adapting to it for practical circumstances. The commute is a key part of my day. It's not an obstacle. It's like something I look forward to and something I've built into stuff with rewards, whether it's like listening to different things or just taking time to like let my mind wander. It's very cool to walk with you and hear about your experiences. I'm excited to get on the podcast. Great, thanks, thanks for having me. This is Laylee back in the studio with Laura after her walk through the U of M campus with John. You two had a really great conversation about flexibility and inflexibility. He's quite experienced in getting from here to there. Yes. So John is our second dedicated pedestrian that we've talked to in the podcast. And it was interesting to think about his commute in relation to that of Matt's in episode four on livability. For John, he is going on a set route throughout the work week, but then he has very sporadic additions when it comes to his evening and weekend commitments. So when he has scheduling changes, having flexibility is absolutely critical. So we're next going to hear from Mary Morse-Marty, the executive director at Move Minneapolis, which is an organization that's all about helping individuals and organizations find flexible, healthy, environmentally friendly options for getting around. What struck me in this interview that you had with Mary was thinking about flexibility as an overlap between concrete options and an open mind. Mary did a really nice job of describing how we need to change infrastructure and programs while also changing our mindsets and culture. It was a really fascinating conversation, and let's go hear more of that. I am joined in the studio by Mary Morse-Marty, the executive director of Move Minneapolis. Thanks for joining me, Mary. Thank you, Laylee. It's great to see you again. 
don't you tell us a little bit about Move Minneapolis and what the organization does? Sure. Move Minneapolis is a transportation management organization. And the TMOs were started in 1990, 1991 as part of the Clean Air Act, which, when it was passed, was focused on reducing congestion and air quality issues all across the nation. So there's about 100, 110 TMOs that exist in all states of the union, and we're all working to uh, reduce congestion and tailpipe emissions. So are TMOs typical for larger cities, or do you see them for all kinds? They're they're only really effective in larger cities, although smaller cities and even corridors can form a TMO. So give me some examples of what are some of the types of programmatic work Move Minneapolis does. We have a lot of business stakeholders. The entire downtown core is our service area. So we have staff that works one-on-one with the human resource and transportation departments and the parking departments for a lot of office towers, not just the owners of the buildings, but the tenants. And we will go out to the employers and make sure that they have things like transit programs, MetroPass, which is a tax-benefited card that an employee can use to get back and forth to work on buses or rail. We help them with bicycle programs. We get them connected with bicycle advocacy organizations so that their employees can learn how to bike. And we help them learn about walking. We generally just are there for the employer to offer their employees these options. So the focus of today's episode is flexibility and and really thinking through transportation options that provide solutions for kind of a a broad set of needs, perhaps. I mean, what are some of the reasons you see people seeking flexibility or perhaps, you know, the businesses that you work with? Let's start with the personal. I work downtown. I live in a place where I have some options to get to work that don't involve my personal car. Today, I took uh, my bicycle on a beautiful path, mostly, to my workplace. But then I needed to get here, and this is another seven miles beyond that. To get here, I could have taken a bus, but it would have been a long slog. There was no rail. I could have done ride hailing, which I do fairly often. I could have stayed on my bike, and I did, but I didn't have a good route from downtown to the major bike trail that comes close by. So I threw my bike on the train for two stops and then got off and came here. So this allowed me to not drive downtown, which would have been anywhere between 6 and $15 for parking. I got a great workout out of it. I will get home on time because it's really not that slow when you have these beautiful throughway trails. And I had fun. So that's, that's the personal reason we do this kind of thing. And then do, do businesses see value in having flexible transportation options as well? I think they do. And it's going to be even more important to them as we see construction all over the Twin Cities this summer and in in, uh, future years. If you can't use the route you're used to, you need to find options. We can't predict always what our path is going to be, so options are the best. The commuter that we spoke with uh, for this episode was John Brown, who's a graduate student uh, at the University of Minnesota, who I've known for a number of years. And he is a very dedicated walker, And so one thing we're wondering, do you have thoughts on what are some ways cities need to think about either, I mean, designing 
infrastructure or structuring services for pedestrians in order to make walking a more default choice? Walking is the primary way we get around. That's the way almost everyone gets around unless they're rolling. And it's essential to do things, I mean, starting from the very basic street form where you want small block areas. You want things that are pleasing to the pedestrian. Trees, planters, you need awnings coming off of buildings. You need a diversity in the kind of structures you have around. You clearly need protection from vehicles. Our commuter, also part of the reason that that we chose him uh, for this episode on flexibility, was we knew that he was a former Cartago user who had gotten rid of his car in order, you know, because he was he was able to use these car sharing services. And it was in the absence of that that he had now moved and adopted this pedestrian lifestyle. And we know that you have a very deep background in car sharing. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Thank you. I'm, I'm one of the founders of Our Car. I led the team that brought Our Car to life. We were the first car share in Minnesota and first one in the region. And we realized that cars are a part of life here. But we didn't think people needed them all of the time because most cars just sit idle. But when car to go came along, we discovered a really new need, which was that one-way trip. We really thought at our car that car to go was going to become a commuting strategy. Now we need to look at free float with things like our car. We need to be open to the autonomous vehicle. I'm excited about it. I I cannot predict what it will look like, but I think in the future the shared vehicle will be autonomous. And what kind of upstream management do you think is necessary in order to make sure, I mean, you know, Cardigo came here and that business model didn't work out, whether it was just because of the business model or if you listen to them, the policies weren't set up in a, in a way that supported them. I mean, it could be any number of things. If we're interested in having the flexibility of car share as a service that is provided in the portfolio of flexible options, are there things that we need to do now to set the stage for that? We need to have the political will, first of all. It can't be seen as something that a private company is coming in to do to us and to extract wealth from us. And I think that's been the mindset of various municipalities. It's kind of frightening because it is all new. People in charge, people in power, planners, others, don't want the citizenry to end up with a real dog after there has been a lot of investment. But at the same time, we need to make our parking policies friendlier to novel organizations and novel systems. We need not just parking. We need um, access to different parts of the city. We need business support. We have these business customers, and that's a, that's a different animal. We have individual customers, and I imagine who our individual customer is. And when I think of this person, I think this is a mother of two preschoolers. She lives in Maple Grove. She has a job downtown. She needs to be there by 8 o'clock. She needs to get her preschoolers to daycare. She needs to get to work and back, pick up her kids, take one of them to the doctor from time to time, buy food, buy groceries, do all this stuff, and she needs to do it in a way she can afford. But then if she buys a car, that's another $8,500 a year. And this customer that you're, you're describing would be one that 
the workplace would also have to provide quite a bit more flexibility, which we're increasingly seeing. So our you know, organizations like Move Minneapolis finding that they have more opportunities and resources and, and an ability to have an impact now that the workplace is one that is evolving to allow more flexibility for people to come and go and work from home and, like you said, telecommute and things like that. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's this new thinking about just get the work done. We don't care where you are when you do it. Get the work done. And for our model commuter, if she can work at home or work part of the day at home, if she can work on her express bus using the Wi-Fi that Metro Transit has on their express buses, that 45-minute commute becomes work time. Even if she's just chilling out and listening to her favorite podcast, which is probably this one. For some of the older generations, vehicles were a status symbol. You'd made it, and so you had your Cadillac or your BMW, and you wanted to drive it. And I, I remember, you know, I, I studied economics in college, and the first thing that you would learn was a negative good was the bus. The higher your income goes, the less you use the bus. It was the bus and potato bread. Those were the two classic examples. Now, I, as somebody that, you know, lives in the city, I feel like it's the opposite. There's some stigma now to driving and active transportation and using transit is is much more the socially conscious. Is this something that you've seen as well in your work? I think we see it among wealthier people. I don't think that that's the norm in blue-collar communities. Or again, you know, we're talking about people who are trying to get the most bang for their buck. So they're buying more house for less and putting their money into the transportation piece. But I think you're right. It is changing. It's certainly changing demographically. Younger people, millennials, they, so far they're still hanging on to their car light lifestyles. I think as we add more trains and sort of what's considered Cadillac transit, people are saying, yeah, okay, now I can get on. Are there equity dimensions of the work at Move Minneapolis? We are thinking hard about that. Something that fascinates me and that I'm very mindful about is when I worked in residential energy efficiency, we had programs to go out and work with people of lower incomes, people of color, indigenous people. And we thought we were doing some pretty good things. And as it turned out, we were asking them to make changes that were not culturally appreciated. And I want to think about that as we approach transportation. People have their goals, their values, and their needs, and it's not for one group to put those on top of others. Where do you think Minneapolis stacks up compared to other cities in terms of doing this proactive work to create these kinds of transportation options for businesses and workforce? We have a lot of opportunity. There's many things left to do. So if you could get... $25 $25 million to use for a project or an initiative around transportation in the Twin Cities, what would you do with it? I think I would take $25 million and build out the complete street system in Minneapolis so that we would have really robust walking, biking, transit systems. And what do you think is stopping us from, from getting there? Is it resources, political will, both? Both. Yeah. Transit is still not that interesting to a lot of people. I mean, where does ride hailing fit into all of this to begin with? Ride hailing's the future. We've just started to exploit it 
And I think the problems we're experiencing now with our providers will go away. And I think car sharing will, it'll be localized. So there will be neighborhoods that have cars that they share. I will share a car with, you know, 10 people on my block. But when I want to do more spontaneous trips, I'm going to always use ride hailing. And I, I hate to keep going back to this, but I will eventually be hailing a multi-passenger vehicle that has no driver. Mm -hmm. And that's the highest and best use of autonomous technology. We've also thought quite a bit about, you know, exactly that kind of multi-passenger self-driving vehicle as being a kind of microtransit to pipe people into, say, light rail, uh, to kind of solve the, the last mile issues you have, especially at the areas where some of the marginal costs of, say, having a driver or regular, you know, bus service might be yes. the highest. Yes. And the only way all of this is going to work is if we get rid of privately owned vehicles. Then it's beautiful. But if we insist on everybody having a privately owned electric vehicle in their garage, none of these advancements is going to make one whit of difference. Electric cars, it's the right fuel choice. But they're being touted, I think, as replacements for internal combustion, privately owned cars. And that's not going to change habitation patterns. It's not going to change miles of road that we are building and maintaining. Nothing changes except you're polluting less. That's a really high value. I mean, pollution is the problem, at least in the TMO. But personally, it's all about land use. I don't want people to be spending $8,500 a year for each car they own. That, what is that doing to our country? When the big build is complete, watch out, world. You know, Minneapolis might make something of itself. Well, thank you so much. Really appreciate You're it. You're welcome. I loved it. Here to There is produced by Apparatus, Transit for Livable Communities, and Studio Americana. Your hosts are Lely Fatahi and Laura Monginsberg. Production and editing by Ian Lovett with Studio Americana. Original music supplied by Bubba Holly. No part of this podcast may be used or reproduced without express written consent of apparatus. To join the ride, subscribe to Here to There at heretotherepodcast.org on iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. While you're there, don't forget to leave us a review and rating. Stop by the heretotherepodcast.org website for additional content, including extended interviews, an interactive commuting story map, pictures and videos from our commutes, and much more.